We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back as we head into hour three, our final uh, hour of the final day of the week, which <laughs> whenever Dennis has a chance to say something like that about a day in the month or a day in the year, it really doesn't mean that much, actually, <laughs> because uh, tomorrow we will start again. But um, I am Seth Liebson, and it's a delight to be with you. Uh, young David, my producer, David Dahl. Hi. Hello. Um I don't know if you did this deliberately or <laughs> just through osmosis, but based on the emails and several calls and things that I get, you have made yourself um, fascinatingly interesting to this audience. Fascinatingly the, interesting. Enigma- International man of mystery. Yeah, yeah something like yeah, that. Yeah, a little Austin Powersy. Yeah. No. <laughs> you have made yourself enigmatically interesting, and people know bits and pieces of you from um, the the um, the byplay we engage in, um, sure. they know of of you that you dance and you take dance classes. Uh, they know of you that you are an amazing cook and you have an Instagram page where you uh, do these wonderfully and you put great music accompaniment <laughs> to it, to these various uh, delicacies. Your most recent one is fantastic. It looks like the best meatloaf ever. And uh, that way you do the chop with the with the. With <laughs> I'm the a little shallot. forceful. Yeah, with it's the, great. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's deliberate. But I've gotten a few uh, requests here and there to talk to you just more about who you are and introduce you more to the audience um, beyond the uh, beyond the uh, after hours of uh, recreation, beyond the dancing, and beyond the uh, and the, beyond the cooking, which are great things about cultural engagement. By the way, when you think about what constitutes a culture. Food certainly. I remember I was doing yeah. a tour once of uh, Chinatown, and um, and uh, the tour guide uh, began by saying, "And there will be a lot of eating," which delighted me to no end. He says because food is culture, which delighted me to no food end. Food is also comfort. It, it's well, it's a necessity, but it, yes, it's a necessity. Yeah. But if we just ate out of necessity, we'd all eat protein blocks. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point, uh, and and I suppose too, it's. It would be true to say if you asked what constitutes a culture, what makes up a culture, it would be, I mean, dance, certainly, music, certainly, uh, food, cuisine, certainly, right? Other things, too, belief systems, uh, mores, customs of behavior. And it's that aspect I wanted to expose of you to the audience, if I might, Um, starting with how you got involved and interested in even having the job you have working for talk radio. So I've talked enough. You talk and tell the audience about how how and why you got to be here. Well, I think I've told this story in air before, but a lot of my passion from radio comes from my youth. I come from, I guess you could say I come from a family that's been involved in radio. My mother was born overseas. She was born in Japan. She was the son of a radio... <laughs> She was the daughter yeah. of a radio <laughs> Let's not go too far with this cultural advancement. Everybody's business. changed these yes, days. Yes, right. She was the daughter of a radio missionary. My grandmother, who is still with us, it was a radio missionary in the Far East. Her parents were radio missionaries. So there was a, 
a long-standing tradition of being involved in radio. In the Protestant church? Yes, they were. They were all Protestants. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. My father is a Protestant minister. Uh-huh. Um, and I grew up hearing those stories of my grandfather in particular, whom I'm named after, and sort of these pioneering ventures, as if you will, which he endeavored in the Far East. It was post-war Asia at the time, an area of the world which really hadn't been touched by Western Christianity in many years. Of course, they were you know, the Portuguese missionaries going back to the 14 and 1500s, right? But um, for a while there, uh, China and Imperial Japan, Indonesia, they were all sort of isolated and cut off from Western influences. And so that was the niche opportunity that my grandparents got involved in and uh, my great-grandparents as well. So I grew up hearing all of these stories about my grandfather, whom I'm just infatuated with. I've never met him. Do you know that? He died in 1970 when my mother was all of six years old. So I've never met the man whom I'm named after, but I've seen plenty of pictures and all sorts of uh, memorabilia, and I have a press card of his, and he was involved in, uh, you know the name President Marcos? Yeah, sure. Yeah, he was on his uh, press corps. No kidding. one time, yeah. In the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, wow. and my great-grandfather was as well. My great-grandfather knew him mm-hmm. up until he was deposed in the 80s, I want to mm-hmm. say. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, so they knew him early on, mm-hmm. <laughs> before the, you know, before the shoes got too B- Before the screens, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it, so I, I grew up hearing all of these stories, and I just really wanted to get involved I kind of dabbled in learning a bit more about radio myself. I started listening to old shows, and then I discovered, like, dramas and Dragnet and one of my favorites, which is The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, and I sort of fell in love with the radio. Thanks to a few uh, current-day films, I saw and was exposed to more of, like, radio disc jockey work Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And eventually I found a way to get involved at a radio station Mm -hmm. by – one of our co-workers had a career tent at the university in which I ended up getting my degree at, Grand Canyon University. And after a, a lengthy interview process, I started working here as an intern, and that's when we met. You know, uh, one of the reasons I want to unfold your story and get some of your thoughts on this show is because you're a very unique person for your age. So what year were you born? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, all right. I, I won't do that. but Class I will. 99. Class of 99 and your Generation Z. You're a very unique uh, individual um, and and wise for your years. So when you were at college and you graduated from Grand Canyon, what was your what was your major t- field of study? Well, believe it or not, I ended up in uh, applied marketing and advertising. So go it's figure. so weird right? because you're such a history buff. Well, I started off buff. in a great books program. Yeah, my college. Talk to me about that. Ridiculous. Talk about that. <laughs> it's it was. Uh, I've, I've been to like four different institutions at this point. Yeah, uh, any of them? Mental? No, the school kind, not the mental <laughs> okay. kind. I knew where you were going with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I. <laughs> I started in a great books program yeah. at Biola University in California. Yeah. Christian institution. I knew that I wanted to get a faith-based education from a young age. I didn't start at Grand Canyon. That's where I ended. Mm-hmm. But I started in a great books program. I read Aristotle, Plato. That's how I can riff off of you sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't make it to Dostoevsky or anything quite like that. Mm-hmm. But I did about a year and a half there. And... I got out of the Great Books program, but I got more involved in an interdisciplinary studies program where I was doing more of communications broadcasting. I was 
involved in both the communications department and the political science, social studies departments on school, on campus. And, of course, COVID happened. And being as Biola is in the uh, blue <laughs> state of California, I, was, uh, I saw the writing on the wall. Not unlike the uh, current uh, callings for certain presidents of Ivy League universities to step down, there were calls for the president of Biola to step down in the wake of the George Floyd riots and saying he hadn't done enough for oh, wow. students of an African-American descent and in California also Latin-American descent. And it was very interesting. I just saw the writing on the wall. Of course, at the same time, we're all dealing with the virus yeah. and masking up and they're saying that, oh, we're going to have people on st- on campus in fall of 2020 come back. That didn't happen. That panned out. I I got out while the going was good, basically. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes I regret not getting all four years there, but I am the person I am today because of my experience there and because I left as well. I took some time off and I sold shoes at a department store, but I needed to get my degree. So I went back and ended up at GCU and... It was really just like a stopgap measure, if I'm being honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I got the uh, applied marketing and advertising degree, where wherein I, I ended up uh, here. Did yeah. you learn more in college or more from selling shoes? Serious question. <sighs> oh, gosh. Um, Did you learn a lot selling shoes? I asked that seriously. I had a manager who said I was very methodical in my, the way I sold shoes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of funny, but I, I learned sort of... Uh, cadences, phrases, how to talk about. I was much more of the let's describe the quality of the shoe and why this is a good benefit for you as opposed to the smoke and mirrors and fireworks kind of salesperson. The reason I ask that question is a story I've probably told too many times on air is between grad school and law school, I told a friend of mine who was my babysitter as a young child, a neighbor of ours growing up, a bit older than me, um, who worked in think tank world in D.C., journalism, And I told him after uh, I had gotten my graduate degree that I was going to law school, and he said, stop, stop right there. Don't go from degree to degree to degree. Go sell soap. I said, what do you mean sell soap? He said, go find a job. Go do something in the world of the economy before you go back to another institution of higher education. And that's why I asked you if you would – and I'm grateful I did. I I did it for two years before I did go to law school, and and. I started in the mailroom, you know, in the mail in the basement of the mailroom there, probably the most credentialed mail clerk in, in that company or in I'm Texas. I'm sure you've seen How to Succeed at Business Without Really Trying. <laughs> when we come right back, more from the life of young David Dahl. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, my guest today is my producer, or this hour is my producer, David Dahl, by popular request. People wanted to hear and learn more about him, what makes him tick, and uh, what what uh, what ticks him off. I might what add. Ticks me off. Well, let me ask you about that. Yeah, as long as I as long as I was playing with that phraseology, what does tick you off politically, culturally? Uh, what what annoys you? What you know, William Buckley said it was easy to write three columns a week because he just read the New York Times every day, and <laughs> every day he found something that I don't angered think him. I've yeah, heard that quote before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I like what, that. What What angers you in our politics? What, what angers you? What do you think about? What do you think is important? What kind of conservative? It's It's not breaking a secret that you are one. What kind of a conservative do you think of yourself as? What interests you in all of that? And just take whatever time you want. Oh, goodness. Well, um, it 
bothers me when people don't understand the gift that we have from sea to shining sea. I might not be the first to say that I believe God endowed us to live on this <coughs> bountiful and beautiful land between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And I, as I expressed uh, a while back with regards to the flag, but I'll catch our listeners up if they didn't miss, if they missed that hour. But when I was in California over Thanksgiving break, I saw a United States flag, several United States flags that were all crumpled on the ground at an antique store. And I have enjoyed going to this antique store in the past. It is in a town with which I am intimately familiar in California. But I was so deeply offended that Old Glory, our standard, was thrown about on the ground that I picked one up and I, (laughs) I gave the shop clerk a piece of my mind. And as we mentioned, I couldn't save them all, but I saved one of them. I saved the flag and Turns out it was a 48-star flag from World War II. It has bloodstains on it, and it is affectionately known as the Arizona flag because we are State 48, Mm -hmm. which is a nice bit of trivia and almost fitting that I brought it back to Arizona. Mm -hmm. But it is things like that which really really grind my gears, if you will, when it seems as though we don't respect or appreciate the truly – God-given grace with which we get to experience this nation. There are countless people who want to come here to share in that dream, and we see it in many ways in which they come here legally and illegally. But you know you have something going for you when people want to come here. Mm -hmm. And we have people who are in the streets throwing it all away and saying, let's all go support terrorism and get rid of the very values which make us who we are. Our nation is a glorious thing, and I want to stand behind it. I'm, a, You could say I'm a principled conservative. I'm a social conservative, and I really believe in the values which made us great. I think that a close orientation with Judeo-Christian values and our modern political society is important to our future. I'm a strong believer in the Bible and political values that stem from that. It's no secret I'm a Protestant, hi folks. But I I really, I love our nation. I love our country. I grew up to appreciate uh, classic film and classic Americana. You could say if anybody, you could say nobody's more American than David Dahl when it comes to culture. <laughs> yeah, I could say that. But uh, I, I just, I love this nation and when it really ticks me off. And that's a, that's a real catch-all, basic, grab-em-all, the idea that uh, when we don't appreciate our nation. But I could go into more specifics, but it's really that uh, I strongly believe we need to align ourselves with the ideals of the, the founders who were, after all, many of them were um, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians. And I, and I think that really influenced the nation. You would agree, I take it, full-heartedly. As you were speaking, I pulled up Ronald Reagan's farewell address from the, from the Oval Office in 1989 when he said, I've spoken of the shining city all my life. I don't know if I've ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks, stronger than oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and activity. And, I mean, that's his poetic way of effectively saying what you said. And 
I guess what I want to ask you about things that might or might not tick you off, having been, having spent time in California, having spent time in a college in California that in some respects parts of which let you down, having been exposed to a lot of politics uh, since then, what, what level of conversation would you have were you able to sit right down right now with Ilan Omar or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who think this country is, uh, if not systematically racist, which they do think so, but um, systematically um, systematically uh, uh, distasteful, systematically uh, low-class and uh, degraded? Well— First of all, it's interesting that you brought up the quote of Ronald Reagan because uh, the one that I was looking up at the same time was his uh, remarks in Dallas, Texas that said, if we ever forget that we're one nation under God, Mm -hmm. we'll be a nation gone under. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with Mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. Interesting that you say that about the squad, Congress people, as they are affectionately known. (laughs) I think initially I'd be a little hesitant because I don't often see among those of the progressive leftward-leaning persuasion an interest in public discourse and debates. It seems as though there are certain factions in this nation which would like to divide us on certain issues as opposed to seeing common ground. I'm not much of a centrist, if you will, but I think it is important in any debate, in any sort of conversation or discourse that you're having with someone to really narrow down what are your issues of disagreement. You have to figure out where you agree to figure out where you disagree, and it is less about me versus you and us versus them, and more so about, and I think what is uniquely important, and of course I'm exposing my uh, (laughs) philosophical background from school, but I think you really need to discuss what is the uh, moral implications of the particular thing that you are disagreeing on. And I think we can look at this on immigration, abortion, all of those hot-button issues which are almost uniquely plaguing the American political system really could be narrowed down to moral issues of what is a person, where does a person belong, what is a nation, do nations have strongly defined borders? These are all moral issues. And it seems that it is often a squabble and a headbutt between emotional-based logicians and logic-based <laughs> logicians, between people who are uh, scrambling over um, initial, how shall I put this, initial emotional heartstring pulls and less about um, what really what really is the, the thought through. It's the, the quick thinker versus the slow thinker. And I don't mean slow in terms of uh, mental retardation. Yeah, I mean no, slow no, no. in terms yeah, of yeah. the methodical, methodical, the thought out. Slow and steady. You know, the tortoise remember, versus uh, the hare. Yeah. You, you mentioned AOC when she was getting interviewed once. She said, we hold truth over facts. Yeah, yeah. Wait we, a minute. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. All right. Um, I read a college paper of yours uh, oh, last night. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and you go into Pat Buchanan's speech at the 1992 convention, what was known as the Culture Wars speech. I should like to talk to you about that when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Young David, uh, I was reading a college uh, paper of yours uh, last night, and you had occasion to bring up and discuss um, 
Patrick Buchanan's 1992 speech at the Republican convention endorsing uh, George H.W. Bush for re-election. And you focused on what everyone focused on, which was his use of the word culture. And um, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about that. You said you were yourself a cultural conservative. And um, you were talking about the kinds of laws that we pass, the kind of country that we are, the kind of politics that we have as a cultural conservative, as someone who is concerned, another word you used was, with the problems in our morality. Uh, Say a few words about why you were writing about Buchanan's culture speech and your views on uh, the polity's ability uh, or um, imperative, or not, imperative velnon, to pass legislation that invokes things people might consider moral. Sure, Seth. Can we legislate morality, in other words? Oof. Tough one. Well, it's interesting that you uh, picked up on that, much like we like to remember and look fondly back on Senator Goldwater's endorsement of Vice President Nixon in 1960 at the convention. I'm looking on uh, 1992 as something a little more recent, at least in terms of my birth year, um, as a regards to the real shifting point in the culture. That's, I guess you could say, when the culture wars took hold. But really, it's it was a conflict that uh, Pat Buchanan just gave a name to that had already existed for quite some time. I looked on that particular moment in history in the paper that I gave you to read of mine, which was, uh, I guess you could say, my magnum opus from college, the longest, uh, most thought-out thing I'd ever written up until that point. But it was really a point in which I saw, having gone to a liberal university in liberal California, seeing oh goodness, there is something going on here and I need to start being able to defend my views and really research and really look at you know cultural artifacts as they relate to modern society and what has happened and almost mapping like a timeline the changes in our cultural consensus, if you will. Because uh, really that's what uh, Pat was doing in 1992 in the same that Senator Goldwater was in 1960. He said that the Clinton-Gore ticket represented the most militant, homosexual, pro-abortion ticket in the history of our nation. I believe I'm quoting him verbatim there. In which he said that he was quite true and was really saying that America, it's time to get behind George Bush. He said, you know, we had our we had our chance in LJ, Georgia, and uh, didn't go our way. He laughed about how many primaries he may or may not have won, which was zero. <laughs> but uh, he represented something which I think uh, showed up in that year's election in Ross Perot, but probably more recently in candidates like President Trump, who represented the the backlash. And I know you wrote an entire book on this, but really the uh, the push back against the so-called swamp of Washington and this idea that, you know, it's a it's a top-down system. Because as I'm relating to your question, it seems more like um, seems more like politics flows upward. It's, you know, it's up for debate, and I haven't really solidified my stance entirely on this. But if you will, it's the uh, so-called Breitbart philosophy that politics flows upward. We may have a increasingly 
conservative candidate who comes to the polls and someone who we think represents the right means for America as we would view it. But if the general consensus of the people, first of all, aren't educated on his or her stances and don't um, feel a feel a consensus with the candidate, then they'll never be able to even get in office in the first place. It would seem as though politics flows from the viewpoints of the people, and that is, generally speaking, how a democracy should work. But the problem comes when the culture slowly starts turning and is hijacked by certain agents that would take it into a certain means in order to produce certain outcomes like socialism. Let me... um. Let me let me take the next segment to talk to you more about that. This, I think, to my lights, a little overused, a little over, a little, a little threadbare phrase that politics is downstream from culture. I think it's far more symbiotic, and I wonder if when we come back, we might just talk a little bit about sure. that. You and I will be right back. I asked you, young David, if you've learned more selling shoes or learned more from college, and uh, <laughs> or have you learned more from <laughs> this job? <laughs> We've given you an appreciation oh, of yeah. trumpet, haven't we? <laughs> oh, I'm not even kidding around. I probably learned so much more from <laughs> listening to you, and I know many of our listeners will agree. No, that, no, uh, no, no. I didn't mean that. I meant knowledge. I just meant learning about things that are my obsessions. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I've learned a lot about Seth at this job. I wouldn't have learned a lot about Seth at college. I'm not obsessed with myself. I'm obsessed with like three things. You made a very good point and corrective point to political history, first of all, when you were talking about Pat Buchanan's culture war speech in 1992. Um, It was reported as Pat Buchanan's declaration of a culture war, and it was denounced as his declaration of a culture war. And in the previous segment, you got it just right in saying he didn't declare a culture war. He described one. In fact, uh, I have the transcript in, 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 in front of me right now. And he said there is a religious war going on mm-hmm. in this country. It's not we should declare one. He said there is one. He says it is a culture war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as was the Cold War itself. For the war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, on and on he went. He didn't call on one. He didn't declare one. He described one, which is kind of what I wanted to use as the springboard for the discussion about politics being downstream from culture. One wonders how we come to these cultural moments where there can be all these uh, upheavals that we seem to be going through in the 90s, whether it was about uh, abortion politics or uh, crime actually was a big one. In fact, he, that's where he spent most of his time and ended his speech uh, very beautifully speaking about crime in California again. And 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 the reason I'm not so convinced that politics is downstream from culture, and I'm more and more of the thought the older I get and the more I see that culture can be defined by politics, takes me back to the first principles of the first book of Aristotle's politics where he says uh, man being a rational animal having the gift of speech and reason uh, when he combines with other men he combines to do the combines to create a polis a, a community a political civilization if you will and that there are two institutions he must um, he must first create one is uh, state 
the polis, the city itself, and one is the family. And then he talks about uh, which one is primary. Is it the family that is uh, by nature prior to the state or the state that is by nature prior to the family? And he says something that takes a little bit of unwinding, and I won't do a ton of it here, but he talks about how uh, the state is by nature clearly prior to the family and to the individual, since the whole is of necessity prior to that of the part. You can't raise a family healthily or decently or the way you want to if you don't have the kind of state that nurtures that kind, that enables that kind, that allows, tolerates, and protects that kind of upbringing. That is to say, um, this, the, the kind of country, the kind of polity you create will determine the kind of culture that you have. Uh, anyone who doubts this sort of thing, just look at this at the most holistic of levels about what is done to the state of family in situations of slavery, what is done to the state of family in situations of Marxist-Leninism or Marxist-Lenin and Maoism, or how a family can thrive and succeed and do well in um, a society like ours when it is at its best politically. If you want to look at abortion, look at the difference uh, in the attitude, never mind the numbers, uh, since 1973 and before 1973. If you want to look about what our youth know and what our adults know, these are decisions made at the school board level. Why was it that the left was so angry? Why was it that the FBI was so energized to go after school boards uh, or conservatives attending school board meetings and waking up to school board curricula debates um, as they were throughout 2020 and 2021 because they understood that you can change a culture through politics. And it seems to me we conservatives, seems to me, have been late in learning that politics and culture are far more symbiotic rather than one upstream from the other. You take that any way you want. Well, it seems to me that this is really the chicken and egg issue of the of the political uh, argument of our day. And it may be more of a back and forth, if you will, because I see your point and I readily realize it in certain areas. But in the case of Russia, that was uh, a popular revolution that was probably hijacked by a few bad eggs, if you will, mm -hmm. to go back to the chicken and egg analogy. Or having to break eggs to get omelets, if you want to take <laughs> yeah. it back to Lenin. You know. Yeah. It, so... It was kind of, um, I think, in the case of at least the school board issues, which were uh, plaguing Virginia during their midterm elections in which uh, Youngkin was elected governor, which we are referring to, I think that was a case of a federal government which has been readily occupied by leftists and big federal government people looking at a... I don't like to use this word insurrection, but perhaps a uh, movement by parents to take back what is rightfully theirs and what the government was trying to take. And that might be a situation where I would say, well, look, that was them trying to enact their right political rights, I might even say, as the people moving upward of government and getting involved and as a, <laughs> as a politics stemming from culture moment right there. So, I, you know, I guess... If anything, I'll concede that perhaps it's more of a back and forth and that uh, it's very specific to certain areas. But, yes, I, I would agree with you that, you know, for example, in 
communist Russia, Nazi Germany, that politics stem from the up-down. And so it's situational. Yeah, and I think they define a people, too, over time. And I think when you look at uh, the way uh, political decisions uh, are used and created to shape cultures, you see the kinds of eruptions of the evil in those cultures by the way they view human life, by the way they view sanctity of family, by the way they view tolerance uh, of other people's uh, dissident, perhaps religious beliefs, and also by the way they fight wars. It seems, yeah, okay, it seems to me at the end of the day uh, statecraft is soulcraft, and that this was understood from Aristotle to Cicero, and that there was a weird and odd departure from that, or at least that kind of thinking with the modernism that came to us after World War II. We'll think more on this. Portions of the show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. They offer up a secure and collateralized portfolio and investment that actually helps people and where you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. The investment is not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market, thus not correlated to their vicissitudes. It's an investment where you are in control. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. Absolutely no fees and no attack on principal if you ever need your money back. You get your monthly statement with no surprises with Y-Refi. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24, 888-YREFI-24. Well, I kind of didn't tell you I was going to do this, so let Uh-oh. let me first thank you. For, well, no, looking back here uh, this hour, so thank you for I letting the audience. I appreciate it. I'm glad we got, to, yeah, we got no. to talk about this. And anytime you want to talk more Pat Buchanan in 1992, <laughs> I seem to be the resident expert. <laughs> Anything you need to say or refute before I... Close the show. In Refute? The week. <laughs> yes, this is your. I last have an airing shot. of grievances. Yes, do you? This is completely unrelated. Okay. They took away the hairspray that I use almost every day from our lovely restrooms in this facility. You were doing so well, David. Oh my goodness! For the past several segments, you were just doing so well, and then you, like the second law of thermodynamics, just let it kind of all corrode, don't yeah. you? You should not be relying on public restrooms or restrooms outside of your home for hair products, whether it's So I have to haul them in with me every single day? Well, no. You shower and take care of your person at home. I don't shower at work. Do you? At home. You do all of this at home. No, of course. There's no showers. But you take... (laughs) You take... I don't know why you need hairspray here. You know, maybe You you don't need anything here. You need hand soap and a sink. That's all you need. And apparently body spray. No, you don't need any. No, stop it. It stop says Seth's facial mist. Well, that's because someone <laughs> misunderstood what I said. I have never used it. I have never used it. I was complaining that there was facial mist and other unguents in the restroom and that someone stole the facial mist. I was never complaining inhaled. that this is why we can't have nice things. Someone, Christina, I think it was, heard this. Uh, someone who listens to this show, and she did a nice thing and put it back in there, and it says Seth's facial mist. I have never once used it. Never once. <laughs> and now I didn't get to my Will Durant quote, which means we'll save it for next week. 
That's a tease. Hey, folks, thanks for spending some of your week with us, some of your day, some of your afternoon. We truly appreciate it. Take none of it for granted and wish you a happy, healthy, and safe weekend. And until Monday, on behalf of David and the team here, I am Seth Leapson. God bless you all and class dismissed.